real life superpowers. If you wake up every day and you're like, the great, the worst thing that could happen to me is that I will blink and 15 years of my life will go by and I will still be in this job and having not accomplished the things that I want. That is a absolutely terrifying idea. Like that way, that is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. I am thrilled to introduce our guest today, Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, host of two popular podcasts and the author of Build for Tomorrow, How to Thrive in Today's Challenging World of Work. With over a decade of experience in the media industry, Jason has become a thought leader on the topics of entrepreneurship, innovation, and leadership. He's interviewed countless successful entrepreneurs and innovators, gaining invaluable insights into the mindsets and strategies that have enabled them to achieve their goals. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned professional, or simply interested in becoming the best version of yourself, this is an episode you won't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and join us as we explore the mind of Jason Pfeiffer. Real Life Superpowers So Jason, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thanks for having me. I have a theory. Okay, I love a theory. I haven't tested it, but I do think that uh, it's possible that if you conduct a conversation with a person, an interview, and you don't heavily prep and research, then it could potentially be a lot more natural. What's your take on that? So first of all, I don't know if you know this, but posing theories is one of my go-to interview subject or interview tricks. Maybe yeah, you do. You're not. That wasn't a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wrote about it in my book. Um, I love theories. And the reason I love theories is because it forces people to think in front of you versus answer questions that they have probably answered before. Now, you did an interesting thing in that you just out of the gate opened with a theory. What I tend to do is wait a little bit and gather some information so that I can kind of smush different things that somebody said to me together, which also signals that I'm really listening to them. But we're super impulsive. It's super effective. It's, it's the greatest interview trick. And you know, what's super interesting also is that I was just talking to a friend of mine, Terry Rice, who's a business consultant. And he was saying, that he noticed that I do this in interviews and then he started using it when talking to clients and he found that it was a really good way to prompt them to think out loud. And I loved watching that idea leap industries and going from something that's more journalistic to something that's more business oriented. Now, at this point, I have forgotten the actual theory that you have posed to me. What was the theory? <laughs> If you don't do research on a person and you just go yeah. into an interview, and as you said, that could be cross industries, by the way. But if you just go and start a conversation, isn't there something that could potentially be a lot more natural than sometimes having to fake curiosity in order to steer the direction in some specific way or other? Yes, so long as you, and I don't mean this as a challenge, but so long as you are a really good interviewer. Like the thing that people get wrong about interviewing is that they think that interviewing is just like having a conversation and it's not. And this is the reason why most podcasts are bad. I mean, let, let's just all admit most podcasts are very bad. And the reason they're very bad is because the person who's doing the interviewing, well, first of all, most podcasts are interview podcasts, which they don't have to be, but they are. And most interview 
most interviews are being conducted by people who don't really know how to interview, and they're interviewing people who don't really know how to be interviewed. Both of these are skills, and you have to really think of them as skills. And if you are good at navigating a conversation in a real interview way, then what you're saying to me is absolutely correct. It is how I tend to go into my most high-profile high interviews. I, I've covered or I've written about so many celebrities. I've, I've profiled celebrities, you know, and I, I have real access to them because I'm the editor-in-chief of a national magazine. So I get to sit down with The Rock. I get to sit down with Ryan Reynolds, like, you know, or Jimmy Fallon, like go to their office. And, and I often go in with very minimal preparation and zero questions written down to ask. Now, that's not to say that I show up and I'm like, Jimmy Fallon, who are you? Or like, tell me about your job, you know? Um, but rather, it's because I have a specific idea of how I'm going to conduct this interview. And that is that I'm going to go in with the mission of identifying a thing that they are incredibly thoughtful about that has helped drive success and clarity for them. And then I'm going to explore it in a way in which their thoughts are going to become useful for my audience because the average person is not going to become Jimmy Fallon. They're just not. But Jimmy Fallon has figured something out that the average person can use in their own work and their own life. And so if you're inquisitive in that way and you also have a mission so that it's not just like random ambling around a conversation – then I think that that tactic works really well because you don't get distracted by the things that they have said before or their work that they've talked about a million times. Or their marketing agenda. Yeah. When people interview me on podcasts, I think the worst thing that people do is when they just leap around my work, prompting me to say things that I've already said. And people do that all the time. That's the primary way that people interview. And it's very, very boring. So I'm excited if you've done basically no work and we're just going to explore. I admitted that I did. I wasn't brave enough to do that, but it's something that okay. I have in mind. We were stalking, but we have to cancel the strategy of jumping between the work things. <laughs> that was our plan, so cancel that. But, you know, initially, like, we, I did just talk a little bit. And it, you, you, this is like your, your, like, I'm guessing here, your passion. And, like, what, when did you know? Define the thing that you're asking me about. You're going in without a question. So, and, and you're an editor of the, you know... Big magazine, and and the thing is, you know that you're good at that, okay? Which when I when I say that, it looks like that you always knew. Now, for people who are listening, always knew is can't be correct. So, like, how did how did you find that you have like an X factor um, in, in in journalism specifically? The answer is that you work really hard at it for a long time and you are mindful of so, somebody once used the phrase this is not some like magic phrase, but it was just the first time I ever heard it was when the words situational awareness popped out of somebody's mouth. And, and I thought, that's right. That's what I try to have. I try to always be aware of what I know and don't know and need and don't have. And I've come to think of it in everything that I do. And I'll give you some examples. So this isn't so abstract, but I, try to think of it in the visual metaphor that I have is taking your hands off the wheel. So when you're trying something for the first time, or you're trying to get good at something, it's like you're like gripping the steering wheel, right? Like you need to have maximum control over where this thing is going. 
and you know you're like hunching forward and you're you know it's just like you're a nervous driver and so for example what is that that's i remember when i first started doing television i would prep endlessly i would memorize the things that i was going to say on air almost word for word i i I would know what they're going to ask because generally if you go on TV, they, they'll give you the questions in advance or at least the kind of pacing of the thing. And they might deviate from it. But I would I would kind of write out what I was going to say. I would rehearse it over and over and over and over and over again to the point where I could do the interview walking down the street. And then I would show up in the studio and I would basically perform the thing that I had rehearsed. That's really gripping the wheel. But the problem with gripping the wheel is that it gives you no flexibility when something changes. So if they ask me a question that I hadn't prepped for, I have nowhere to go. I, my brain is not available for that. So that's why. But that's not to say that gripping the wheel isn't bad, because at first, I just need to get comfortable with the idea of being on TV. Like I just need to get comfortable with sitting in that chair, having the lights on me and the cameras, talking to these people, and acclimate to that environment. And then the next time that I do it, maybe I can like loosen my grip a little bit. And then the next time I loosen my grip a little bit more, which means that maybe I don't practice as much. Maybe I don't try to memorize it as much. Maybe I just have an outline of the ideas of things that I want to say. And so that when I go in, I'm now a lot more flexible and comfortable because I, I, I acclimated to the first set of skills that I needed so that I become more flexible with the next set of skills. And that's the same with interviewing, for example. I, st I, I've, I mean, I first got into journalism in college. I, I, you know, I, I wrote for like the student magazine and I wrote for local newspapers. And when I would go into an interview, I would have a list of questions that I had written out and I would basically read those questions. And what I came to learn is that's a very bad way of interviewing people because you're not listening to what they're saying, which means that you're not available to follow up, which is where the interesting stuff actually happens because you're just thinking about what the next question is. But that's what was necessary to have the bravery to get on the phone and interview someone in the first place. So it wasn't the wrong thing to do. It just wasn't the mastery level thing to do. And I try to approach every new thing that I do with that in mind. So if I'm going to stand on stage, stage and speak, the first time First couple times I did that, oh boy, I mean, I like I practiced endlessly. And now, I mean, I have this talk that I know how to give, but I can move within it. I've created this flexibility because I'm so comfortable on there that now I'm much better because I can adapt and adjust on the fly. So you start gripping the wheel and then you try to relax it and you find where you're good. And so over time, I found that this is one of the things I'm good at is interviewing people. But isn't there a fear of getting too comfortable, like to go with your metaphor, then, you know, we get so comfortable driving that we just get our eyes off the road and we text. Yes. That's true. This is this is the um, the limitations of this metaphor is that you don't actually want to drive without any hands on the wheel. Um, but you know, when I think about how I drive, I guess I usually drive with only one hand on the wheel, and I'm pretty relaxed. And I think as a result, I'm able to adapt to the road circumstances better because I'm not like stiff. You know, um, you're right. You can definitely get too flexible. You can definitely get too relaxed. You can start to be lazy, and you never want to be lazy. Which is why you, I, the thing that I'm always obsessed with is, and I have just built into everything that I do, is that there is an audience of people being served and I need to serve them, which means that everything that I do has to be done with the mindset of 
somebody has to get something out of this. And so that's why I'm able to walk in to talk to Jimmy Fallon with almost no prep, because you know what, who, you know, who doesn't really matter in this circumstance, Jimmy Fallon doesn't really matter. What matters is the audience. And I have a really clear understanding of them and I know how to serve them with anybody. So I'm going to talk to Jimmy, but really what I'm doing is I'm talking through Jimmy to my audience. And that is crystal clear. So if you understand, it's almost like if you understand the destination and the, the, the purpose of why you're doing what you're doing, then you can have a lot of flexibility in how you actually approach that because you're always being mission oriented. I have a few questions about that, but I'm going to ask I'm, I'm more intrigued. You said this, you started only on in college, right? Okay. So what, what, what were you thinking about before? Like, why did you start in college? Well, I, I mean, I actually started a little earlier. It depends on how you want to think about it. Right. So I, if you, I think that everybody's career has this kind of zigzagginess to it. I call it the zigzag payoff, which is that if you if you look at each individual step, one thing doesn't necessarily look like it connects to the next, right? But there's a logic to how one led to the next because what people are actually doing, even though their moves may look disjointed, what they're actually doing is building upon previously developed skill sets. So like like I think the people the mistake that people make when they think about what they want to do next or they feel stuck in their career, which I've been talking to a lot of people who feel stuck lately, is that they think because I am doing this specific role or task, this is roughly speaking the only thing that I know how to do and therefore my options for my next career, job, whatever are incredibly limited to the little ecosystem around this skill set. And the trick is to get people to think, well, no, 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 let me, let's, let's go deeper. You are not actually just the product of the tasks that you perform or the role that you occupy. Um, you have to go deeper than that. You're, you're actually a set of skills and you're actually deeper than that. You're actually a, a core interest that drove you to develop the skills that enable you to do the tasks and, and figuring that out allows you to start pivoting around. So it's the difference between I'm a magazine editor and I tell stories in my own voice, right? I'm a magazine editor means that my next role can only be in magazines, very limiting, particularly in a world where magazines are like constantly closing, but I tell stories in my own voice, which is the core thing underneath the magazine editor that allows me to do all sorts of things. So it, you know, you, you rewind far back enough and it's like, in elementary school, I was drawing comic books. In middle school, I was, I don't know, I can't even remember what the hell I was doing in middle school, but uh, but in high school, I'd started a blog and, um, and started writing for a local music magazine. And then in college, I took some of those, that, that kind of communication instincts that I was developing, and I started applying it in a more structured way to the college newspaper and to um, local newspapers or college magazine, local newspapers. And, um, and then after college, I, I was like, well, I, I, I want to continue this work. Who will hire me to do it? And the, oh, I didn't have any connections. The answer was a local newspaper. Like I, I went to a tiny little local newspaper, 6,000 circulation daily paper in North central Massachusetts. And, um, they paid me $20,000 a year, <laughs> garbage. And, uh, and I did that. Right. And, and the things that I do now and the way that I am talking to you right now in this very service-oriented way, like, like consider just to go back to what I said a moment ago, where you, you think about the audience. Yeah, like everything that you're asking me is a personal question, but I'm trying to answer it 
with frameworks that people who are listening, who are not me and who probably maybe don't care about me because you've never heard of me, uh, that you can still use these in your own life. That's what's relevant. And I've trained myself to do that through all of these other jobs. And so every single thing that you do is building upon the next thing. And that's how I see the whole arc of my career. But how did you have the wisdom to not wait to be chosen, especially as a journalist at a local magazine? So most journalists at that level would wait for some big publication to suddenly, you know, spot their really great content and, and ask them to come work for them. But, it, but I, it seems like you never waited for the gatekeepers to come and say, okay, you're the chosen one. There was something from a very young age that drove you to hack the, the career path that you want, even if you didn't know specifically what, where it's going. You had that inner compass, and it's really interesting. And, and speaking in your words, there was some form of formula that can be applied for people in, in other industries as well, and just in general. There's a mindset there that's really interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. The, here's the formula that I came up with, which is, it came up, I came up with it retroactively. I didn't think about this when I was like 21. But the formula is asking yourself this, what do I have? What do I need? What's available? Like if, if you just apply that to everything that you're doing and where you want to go, it starts to create pathways. What do I have? So I'll give you an example. The first time I, I can think of like of using something like this, even though I didn't use it like this because I didn't have it, but the, that kind of thinking was when I was at that very first newspaper, tiny little newspaper. And I mean, what I what drove me? Impatience is the answer, right? Like it was just impatience. I, I, I didn't want to sit around at this little job that I hated while I was seeing other people who were my age doing the things that I wanted to do. It drove me crazy. I mean, I, I just, I remember discovering that somebody I read in the New York times or even the Boston globe or something was around my age. And I just, it just filled me with anxiety. I was like, why are they there? And I am not like, I have to figure out how to get from here to there. Cause Fine, maybe they had some advantages that I didn't. Maybe they knew some people, but also possibly they're just more talented than I am. Like, I, but there's something that I can do right now to 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 get closer to over there. And if I don't figure that out, I'm going to be incredibly dissatisfied. Um, so here's what I thought: What do I have? What do I need? What's available? What do I have? At that job, it was I had a, a job where I could show up every day and I could write, and they would pay me. Didn't pay me well. Uh, but I, that's what I had. And, um, and what do I need? Well, if I want to get to these higher places where I'm doing what I think of as bigger work, more satisfying work at, at, a, at a higher level, then I guess what I need is I need, what do I need? I need those skills. I need those connections. I need to be able to prove to the people who work there that I'm worth working with, uh, which means that I need to learn from more experienced people and those people are not at my current job. And I need to be able to do some of that work so that I can show that it's possible that I can do it. And so then the next thing is what's available, like literally what's available, not in a hypothetical way, not next year, like what is available right now? Like if you think about you listening, if you think about where you want to go, something is available to you right now. Something may not be your ideal thing, but something is available. And in my case, what was available was freelancing because the media industry works 
off of a lot of freelancers, which are basically like one-off contractors. So you could go pitch a story idea to a newspaper or a magazine, and if they like it, they will contract with you to do that one story, which is a much lower bar than hiring you on staff. So that's what I did. I quit that first job. And I just started trying to freelance and it was hard and I didn't have any connections and people mostly ignored me. But after a while, I started to get some big hits and some national publications. And that gave me the things that I needed to start to accelerate. You said something in the beginning with like uh, with Jimmy Fallon that you're always going to that agenda of like what is what are the listeners getting out of this? Do you have a feeling maybe that you were impatient because you're not... It's not the journalists that you CV that you're looking for, but the uniqueness as a person to have their unique voice. And that, that way, the more you prove that unique voice is unique from all those zigzag steps. So like you're, you're, you're looking for that feeling. It was like what you have and not what CV you're going to have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this goes back to situational awareness. I mean, if you go back, if you go back that far to these earlier stages of my career, I didn't have a lot of the things that I have now. I didn't have the kind of command over my writing voice that I do now. I didn't have a perspective, and nor did I think I needed a perspective because at that time I was I was really occupying a different role. I was a pure journalist, which meant that my job was to not have a perspective. My job was to go out and just find things that mattered to the audience, whatever that was. For if I was working at the local newspaper, that audience was people who work in that community and who want to know what's going on in their community. And, uh, and, and it, as I progressed, it was, it was different audiences. Um, but back then I didn't think yet one of the skills I needed to develop was to be my own person and to have my own voice, right? Like that, that's a much later thing. Um, at the time you want to, you want to be realistic about what are the next steps that you need, right? Like it, I was recently talking to um, a woman, I, so we, me and my friend, Nicole Lappin, who's a best-selling money expert, we have a podcast called Help Wanted, where we bring on people who have work challenges, and then we talk them through it. And so we just had this woman on who makes $43,000 a year, and she had asked her boss for more responsibility. And after years of apparently not getting it, she finally got some more responsibility, but they didn't give her any more money and she didn't ask for more money. So she actually kind of got what she wanted, but we were, but she's dissatisfied. And we were like, well, what would you, what's a goal? Like if you go to your boss and say, you want more money, how much money are you asking for? And she's like, well, now I think I'm doing two different jobs because they gave me more responsibility. So like an extra $50,000, we were like, hold up. Right? Like you're not going to go from making $43,000 to your boss being like, sure, I will completely double and then sum your salary at your current work. Right? You have to be realistic about what is the next step that you can actually get your foot on, even if you ultimately have much larger ambitions, which are great. So back then, I would not have said, the next thing that I need to do is turn myself into like a, a, like a national authority on something. That's ridiculous. The next thing that I needed to do was figure out how to do this kind of editing, right? Like I needed to learn long form editing because I only do short form editing. I needed to learn profiles because I had only done this other kind of reporting. You like, you step your way into skill sets with an idea of where you're going, but with a realistic understanding of what it takes to get there. We're excited to be collaborating with the Israeli website CTEC, owned by Kalkalist, Israel's leading business newspaper. CTEC is the gateway of the Israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa. 
If you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out calcalistech.com, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com, to stay up to date on all high-impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. I want to talk about what you said about that envy that you felt and that misery, because it made me think, I think it was Peter Thiel that I heard an interview with, uh, who used to be a lawyer, and then um, he remembers walking down the corridor with the box on the last day when he quit, and having people around him look at him with envy, and he said a sentence, again, I'm not sure it was him, but the message is the same, he said a sentence, I was just lucky to be miserable enough. And, and I could also relate to that because I was also a lawyer. Uh, I, would just, I, I just uh, studied law and I did uh, an internship and I took the bar and I was just miserable enough to, to stop there. But I did see people around me who I thought were miserable. And I think there's some mindset that people tell themselves, this is, this is what's safe, this is what I should do. And they don't give enough room to that misery And certainly that envy just makes them more miserable, but certainly it doesn't drive them. And I would yeah. really love to help people pause and not settle. So what would you have, what would you say to people who are, many people are in that position, I think. Totally. Peter Thiel seems like a pretty generally miserable person. Um, <laughs> I don't know him. Uh, so this reminds me, I just got an email this morning from someone who, reads my newsletter. I have this newsletter called one thing better, which, um, it's one, one way to improve your like work and life each week. And this week uh, for anybody who's interested, if you just go to one thing email, that's a, that's an actual URL, one thing email. Um, and, um, and I did this thing th that came out today as, as we're talking about how to quit something and, and how to like understand that when you quit something, you're not actually starting from scratch, but you are, walking away with all of this knowledge and wisdom and experience that you can then build upon for the next thing. And, um, and I got this email from this woman who said that she is in a unhappy marriage and it's been going on for years and they've gone to therapy, like three different therapists and like nothing works. And she does not talk to her husband, but they live together and they have these kids that they're ostensibly staying together Four, but the kids are very aware that the parents are totally miserable. And, um, and she just feels totally stuck. And she asked me what to do. And, you know, that's a personal version of the thing that you're just describing with, with work. People also do that. They, they stay in a job that they just hate. And, um, and so what I told her, I replied and I was like, well, look, first of all, just understand I'm not a therapist or a marriage counselor, but, um, but like, so take this for whatever it's worth. But a question that I think is really helpful to ask in these kinds of situations where you're feeling stuck. And I think that this applies to work too, is what is the cost of action versus the cost of inaction? Like, which is the greater cost, the cost of action or, or the greater risk you can think of it? Like, which is the greater risk, the risk of action or the risk of inaction? Because people often don't think about that. They only think about the risk of action. Oh, if I do this, then these bad things might happen. If I, if she divorces her husband, she's going to have to, I don't know, I don't know her life outside of this email, but we could just imagine, right? There's going to be some financial challenges. It's going to be very emotional. It's going to be ugly and awful. The kids' lives are going to be interrupted. Um, as she's going to be on her own, you know, whatever. There's like a whole lot of things here, but what are, those are the, those are the risks of, of action. 
um, the upsides are you're out of that relationship and you can start to move on with your life and rebuild and find someone you love and all that stuff. But that's hard to see when you have the cost of action in front of you. But what we don't often think about is what is the risk of inaction? What is the risk of not doing something? I mean, you can see it. She's in a completely miserable situation. Her home is miserable. It's miserable for her. It's miserable for her kids. I assume it's miserable for her husband too. And that is like not a situation that's going to improve unless there's action. And if she thinks that she's like staying together for the kids, the kids are probably absolutely being traumatized by this like terrible experience. And, um, and so I said, you know, look, this is for you to weigh yourself, but like, think about the risk of inaction versus the risk of action. And I think that you apply that to work too. Like, okay, you're at a job and you're miserable and you're afraid of leaving and you're like constantly trying to justify it to yourself. What is the risk of inaction? I will tell you, because I have friends who've done it. The risk of inaction is that you blink and 15 years have gone by. But, but Jason, it's so true. But most people are, are scared, like the, the challenge of making that equation, they're just scared of what they don't. It could be a good outcome. It's just because one, I see, so I know what it is, even though it's horrible, right? right? But the one you don't see, even if it's a good outcome, they can't touch. It's sort of like, you know, the visionary problem. You know what I mean? Like they know it's correct, but still the action, they can't take it because they have no idea how tomorrow morning, you know, sporadically. It's like diet. I'll try tomorrow. Right. Well, so first of all, but w w like you're totally right. But what you're saying there is also identifying motivation by fear, right? Like it's the motivation of staying is because you're motivated by the fear of leaving. So part of the purpose of the exercise of thinking about the risk of action versus the risk of inaction is to also create fear of staying. <laughs> because then you can be motivated by that fear. Like instead of saying, let's just not be motivated by fear, that, that's a ridiculous thing to say because we're human beings and we will be motivated by fear. So instead, why don't we harness that and say, all right, well, what are we not taking into consideration? And I think that if you if you wake up every day and you're like, the great the worst thing that could happen to me is that I will blink and 15 years of my life will go by and I will still be in this job and having not accomplished the things that I want. That is a absolutely terrifying idea. Like that way, that is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. And um, and so I mean, I realize that that like these words that I'm saying right now by themselves are not going to make people to change their lives, but it's a good starting point. Another good starting point is that you know you you could i was talking to um what's her name katie milkman who's a professor at wharton who studies how people uh, she's a behavioral scientist how people make change and so on make hard decisions and i asked her what's the simplest thing that somebody can do to try to explore whether or not to make a change and she said she's like this is going to sound really pat but the answer is experiment because most of the time when we think about doing something new, we think of it as a long-term commitment. And then we are afraid to make that long-term commitment of something that we don't know very well. And therefore, we don't do it at all. And, uh, and so we stay. But if you just reframe it as an experiment, I'm going to do something and it's just an experiment. And I'm going to run it for a little bit and see if I like it. And maybe I do, and maybe I don't. And either way, I learn something about myself, which is the whole point of an experiment. Well, now you start to open things up. So like, let's apply that to both scenarios here. Someone's at, their, at a job that they absolutely hate. 
what's an experiment that you could run? Well, I mean, a, a very large experiment is that you could quit your job and try something else and see if you like it. But if that's too big, how about the experiment of trying something else on the side? How about the experiment of like doing a little freelance work, doing a little consulting work, do, just doing something. Working your next job. Working your next job. Exactly. Thank you very much. You did do your research. That's a concept in my book, your, uh, Build for Tomorrow, um, uh, which we could talk about. But um, um, that's right. You You could try something on the side and see if you like it. And if you do, then maybe you want to do that thing, or maybe you want to do something else, but you just found that something else excites you. And that's, that's great. Um, and in your, in the personal life, like what could that woman do? She could, she could, um, have an affair. <laughs> she could have an affair. I mean, she could, right. You said that as a joke, but like, actually she could, that's a thing that she could do. And that's a good experiment. In that circumstance, I would say that's a pretty good experiment because she will discover if other people make her happy, even a little bit. And if that's true, well then, you know, maybe that person she had an affair with is like not the answer, but the discovery that she can find happiness with someone else definitely is an answer. And, and, but like, okay, an affair sounds like a little too heavy. Fine. Um, just take a little more time for yourself. Start to plan some outings with friends, take a vacation, take your kids on vacation, do something that's just outside of this hellish situation that you have at your home and start to discover that you can find joy outside of it. And, and that by itself will start to change the calculus of what is the risk of action versus inaction. Yeah, sort of like also breaking it down into small steps and then suddenly it's not a matter of uh, you know all or nothing. And and just the 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 zooming out and labeling what you how you feel and and really sort of um acknowledging that you're miserable or even just you know it doesn't have to be extreme but just that fact and maybe just opening yourself up to the possibility that you could do better is actually something that could really change lives. And I wish more people would just allow themselves to dream. Totally. The logic behind it being scared, I like that. I really like that on the inactive because if you simulate how scary that is, it'll bring you to action. And the scary thing is you said blink, but you know, tomorrow morning and suddenly he's nice or the job is great or the boss gives you a raise tomorrow and tomorrow. So the simulation is really good, good action. Yeah. And, and like speaking of fear, your book is all about change and embracing it and how most people fear change. And I was thinking about your book in the context of generative AI and everything that's happening these days, which your book was actually released before it all the, yeah. all this happened, right? Yeah, it was. I wrote it in, I wrote it in 2020 and, uh, or no, I wrote it in 2021. So it was, it was before all this stuff. Started. It worked. And, and now it can be like yeah. a playbook. Because I think people are hysterical about losing their job because they're going to be replaced by AI. And I think reading your book, uh, then people can really look at this as an opportunity and really just shift the way they approach it. So I would love for you to maybe give a little bit of information for people about how maybe they can adopt some of the practices and, and shift the way they're looking at this. Sure. Yeah, I, I wish <laughs> I wish I could magically insert a chapter about AI because it comes up so often. Okay. This to me was the most eye-opening moment I've had so far with AI. And it wasn't using AI. It was traveling to San Francisco uh, five, six months ago. And I had been hired by a law firm to speak at their annual attorney retreat. And so I get up, I give this talk, which I, you know, 
this talk that I have, which is based on the book. So I give these frameworks for how to identify and think about your relationship with change and find new opportunities and so on. And then we get to Q&A and as is happening a lot, but was like really happening there, everyone was focused on AI. And that was particularly interesting to me because they're lawyers. And so you got all these lawyers and they're all asking about AI. And afterwards I got off stage and I go to the CEO and I say, oh, so interesting that all of your like attorneys are so focused on AI. And he said, he said, yeah, I'll tell you what they're nervous about. What they're nervous about is that AI, stuff like ChatGPT, is going to make motion writing more efficient and lawyers work on billable hours. So if their work becomes efficient, then they see themselves as losing money. And that's what they're worried about. To which I immediately thought, that is excellent. That is so excellent. And here's why. Because you know who hates billable hours? Everybody. Everybody hates billable hours. The clients hate billable hours. Frankly, the attorneys hate billable hours. It's the incentive that they have, so they like work within it. But do they love it? Do they wake up in the morning being like, I got to get billable hours? No, everybody hates it. It's a horrible system, and it doesn't work well, and it's it doesn't make any sense. Like, What other system are you using where like you have this incredibly expensive, important service, and it's like done in this ridiculous billable hour way? It's awful. But there has not been an incentive for any law firm to move away from it. Why would they do that? Because it's the thing that everyone expects, and therefore it's the thing that we keep doing, even though everybody hates it. So what's going to happen now? Well, what's going to happen now is that AI is going to make motion writing and other law work more efficient, which means that billable hours is going to stop making sense, which means that somebody out there is going to be first in figuring out what the next model looks like. And we get to then build it again. So what do we have? What we have is a system that is broken that we are finally going to break, right? We are going to break a thing that is already broken. And I said this to the CEO of the law firm, and he said, that's exactly right. And that's why we just hired someone to think about AI and how we can get ahead of this and bless them for being that forward thinking. But then I started applying this kind of thinking that we are going to break, that like what AI is going to do is not break things that work. It's going to break things that are already broken. And I started to realize this is exactly what you're seeing everywhere else. So for example, in colleges, all my, all my friends who are professors are all worried about how students are using AI to write their papers. And that therefore, how can they tell if the student wrote the paper? You know what? Paper writing sucks. And it's always been a terrible way to evaluate whether or not students have actually absorbed information. It's always been broken, but we've had no incentive to build something better. And now we finally do because we are going to break the thing that is already broken. And that is what's exciting. So I would say to people that if you're thinking about how AI is going to break something, the first thing that you should do is ask yourself if that thing actually works in the first place or if it's broken already, but we're just stuck with it. And now, because the answer is almost certainly going to be, it's already broken. How do you then step into the void and create the solution that everybody is going to need? Because it's not like we're not going to stop evaluating students. It's not like we're not going to continue providing law services. We are going to continue to do these things. We just need better systems. And now we get to go create them.
But you know, I agree with you so much, and yet there is so much resistance in places where you would think would be more agile. Like I see Google and SEO, they're trying to sort of resist content that's written by AI, and I think, why should that matter? It's if, uh, you know, Google is measuring quality content and context and authority, and if a person behind the AI is able to churn that out at great volumes, I don't know why that is a problem to Google and why they care what's behind it. And the same for like publications. I, I don't know what your take is on this and on entrepreneur, but I see other publications, they, they want you to actually check a box that this text wasn't written using AI. And because I don't understand, but it doesn't matter because if I'm able to submit a paper that's high quality and I've weighed in my expert opinion and I've, I've become a super editor of something that generative AI wrote after I briefed it, why should a publisher care? Well, so, the, I mean, these are really great, interesting questions that we're going to be grappling with for a long time. We'll, I can take both of them. So Google, for example. I don't think that it makes sense to say that just because something was written by AI, it's not worth reading. But I don't think that that is actually the thing that's motivating Google's effort to create some kind of filter here. What Google is trying to do is sort relevant from irrelevant. And you know the, the problem is that everybody in the world of creating content, whether that's human beings creating high quality, professionally produced things, or it's a bunch of bad actors just like creating spam pages designed to drive ad revenue or sell Viagra pills or something, everybody's trying to do the same thing, which is to understand what the Google, Google, Al Google algorithm preferences and then try to play to that. And what Google doesn't want is for someone to search Google and get a bunch of crap. Because if that happens, then Google becomes, as a service, less relevant to them. But the end result should, should be what matters. It's the same KPIs, the quality of the content. That's right. But, but you can imagine that like in at least the early days right now, the, 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 the larger volume of AI being published online is probably going to be published by bad actors who are just filling their websites with garbage. And so Google is trying to figure out how to adapt to that. I don't think that the answer is going to be because this was produced using AI, it therefore is garbage. But at a starting point, you do have to take into consideration how people are using this tool and therefore how you can continue to make sure that your search engine is producing relevant results. So I think that what they're grappling with is, is a reasonable thing to grapple with. And just like anything, we're going to end up with some solutions that are a little like incorrect or heavy handed. And then they're going to have to be, but you know, the Google algorithm, I don't know, I don't work at Google, but I would imagine the Google algorithm changes hourly, you know, like they're, they're probably constantly tweaking it. So they're going to make some changes and they're going to react to it. And I, I think that that's a reasonable way to think because what, you know, what I don't want is basically someone to set up a machine that just populates like 4 million websites every day. And that's the only crap that I, and like, it's meaningless. Unless you it's know, good. That's yeah. actually, the, that's the exciting part about it. Now everybody, it's, it's leveling the, the playing field. And now you have, you're going to see the creativity of how, if everybody has the AI out, everybody does it's, that, it should just step you're up actually going to see a new X factor that you know, I think can't just, imagine I right think now. It just steps up the game and the same KPIs, the machine, it shouldn't matter as far as I think uh, if a person wrote it or AI so long as uh, the result is, is uh, you know, up to standard or above. And I, I, would, I would guess that that's what you'll ultimately find is that there will be, like right now it's so early days that um, 
that we're still trying to figure out what this is for. And so it's, you know, you're, you're seeing everybody try to adapt to very quickly changing circumstances and trying to understand what is quality now and what is not quality. And I, I, my bet is that you will you will not end up in a world because it doesn't make sense. You do not end up in a world where Google and everywhere else is, is is like able to identify that something was written by AI and therefore toss it in the garbage. Instead, they will find ways, as they have imperfectly with human writing, to try to figure out the difference between what is quality and what is spammy garbage. And that, you know, like the same problem existed with human writing, which gets to your other question, which is about like publications using AI. You know, so I think that the, the media, the digital media model is fundamentally already broken, uh, right? Which is to say, because if you look at any content website, like let's let's just say kind of traditional or maybe like just a notch below traditional media. Um, so that would be everything from, I mean, look, I'll throw entrepreneur in there, entrepreneur, Forbes, fortune, um, a, a business insider. I mean, I know these are all America centric, but that's where I live. Um, the, you know, uh, uh whatever, um, Marie Claire, Cosmo, uh, whatever. And all the, everywhere, you know, men's health. Um, you know, if you look under the hood of those, what you're going to find is primarily a team of young journalists who are, you know, paid okay to poorly, whose jobs are to identify what's trending on the internet and then very quickly write their version of a thing that already exists, which is how you get Elon Musk sending out some crazy tweet and then literally every publication writing an article about it, right? Um, it's, it's not because they're adding original value to the world. It's because they're playing to the model that doesn't work, which is that you need to get more and more views on your ad, on your advertising-driven article pages um, to support the business model. Now, does that actually create value for humanity? My argument is no. It just it just doesn't, right? I mean, there's no real good reason from a value perspective that 8,000 websites all at the very same time wrote an article about an Elon Musk tweet. It, it just it just it doesn't add value. But there's a lot of labor involved in that. And um and and I I think that that's stupid. I just think this is stupid and it's not adding anything. So what's going to happen now? Well, I think that probably what's going to happen is that publications are going to start to use AI to do some of that work that these young people had been doing. And now you could say, oh, well, that's terrible because now you got these young journalists who are out of work. And maybe in the short term, yeah, but also maybe those young journalists now are able to utilize their emerging talents in more meaningful ways to produce the kind of reporting that AI is not going to produce, um, which is pretty useful, right? Uh, and therefore, what we're actually doing is we're freeing up labor to be more meaningful in the same way as in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, when knitting became automated. At first, you know, you had the Luddites who went and they tried to destroy the machines. But then, you know what happened next, which is that the machines replaced humans in making 
like utility socks, right? Like the most basic things that required no creativity and frankly, no human ingenuity. Those were jobs that were being filled by humans. And then once humans weren't needed for those jobs, it's not like the humans stopped knitting. They, they had more potential. They had more potential and they started to create distinct regional styles of knitting, which is what we know today, um, because they were now able to free up their labor for things that were more valuable. And that is what I think you'll actually see at publications. And then some publications will just die. And that's also fine because a bunch of these, they, they were created out of a out of a, a business opportunity driven by Facebook and, and, and Google traffic driving. And if that changes, then some of these die, but it's fine. We don't need these, you know, like every publication doesn't need to exist forever. Um, things will change. And that's also fine. So let's make that practical. What would you advise a journalist who is now fearing for their job? Um, the same thing as I would advise everybody who is concerned about their job, which is to figure out where the value is and to not try to push against new things, but to figure out how to utilize them as tools, but not to be subsumed by them. You can be creative. You can create something that doesn't exist. You can identify that the next generation of whatever it is that you do is going to have a different valued skill set than the previous generation. I remember talking to Lee Rainey, who was the, maybe still is, um, the president of the Pew Center for Internet Research or something like that. I, I, don't, I kind of have it a little bit wrong. And um, and he he said this really interesting thing to me, which was, he said, and this was years ago, this is pre-AI. He said, you know, a couple generations ago, the sign of intelligence was the ability to quickly retain and recall a lot of information. And now a sign of intelligence is the ability to quickly find and sort information. And is one better than the other? No, they're just different. They are different skills that are based on the different resources of different times. And I think that that's a really useful way to think of it because you know what? We don't need to remember things as much as we did before because we can find them. So that means not that people are stupid, even though like the Atlantic and whatever will run these incredibly stupid covers that are like, is Google making you stupid? No, it's not. It's not making you stupid. It's just changing the things that we do and change. It doesn't mean loss. Um, but instead it's going to create new opportunities and the people who are able to identify how to be most valuable to the next set of needs are going to be the winners. And where is this heading? You know, going by this line, what's going to be intelligence in 10 years? So, I think that everybody who makes predictions about the future is wrong. Everybody. And it's a foolish endeavor. Uh, and so um, you can't bait me into it. I, I mean, I, I, I really genuinely like, you know, because I'm very interested in the history of innovation. And I, I have, I've spent years and years writing about it and making podcasts about it I, and reading old newspaper articles. I'm totally fascinated by it. But the consistent theme is that people have absolutely no idea. No, but I don't mean that like in an Oracle sort of question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the sense that at the moment it's about sorting information and now, you know, it's clearly heading towards a more advanced and different sort of skill sets that's going to be needed. So I'm wondering if you have any, you know, any, you know, 
estimation of where what the skills are going to be based on that? Well, I would say uh, instead of answering for 10 years, I'll answer for what the shift is right now. I would say that the shift right now, you could argue, is not just a matter of being able to find and sort information, but it is also to most smartly use available resources, uh, right? Because already, for example, you're seeing that people are creating all sorts of wild new things utilizing chat GPT and some of these generative things. And, you know, they have access to the same stuff that I do, but I'm not doing that stuff. I, I haven't spent the time to try to understand how it works well enough to figure out how to be creative in my use of it. I'm just still at basic. I'm still at like, let me go and type a prompt in and see what happens. But people who I think are willing to figure out novel uses of available resources, that's going to be a real differentiating factor. And that's a great experiment for people who are feeling miserable at what they're currently doing, by the way. Yeah, it sure is. It, it, also, it's something that you can just do right now, you know, and... and um, no risk. Experiment, right? To go back to what we were saying earlier, run an experiment. Jason, what's your superpower? I think that every human being has the exact same superpower, and that is pattern recognition. And the thing that is different among us all as individuals is what pattern we are good at recognizing. And I would say that in the last number of years, I I would have said before that my, my pattern is communication. I can understand, and this is true, like I, I, I can I can consume something, a podcast, an article, and I can see the architecture of it. I can, like, I can understand what the person who created it was doing. And then I can, with some trial and error, replicate it pretty well. Um, and that's, you know, everybody can do a version of that. Some people do it in business. Like, you know, you can, some people can walk into a business that is failing and figure out how to solve it and, and like fix it. And the reason they can do that is because they've seen enough businesses fail that they understand the mechanisms of it. And then they can walk into one that is failing and immediately identify the pattern and then start to start to solve it. Everyone has this exact same ability. It's just how you apply it. But now I would say I, I, I'm, I've another thing that I've found that I'm just good at doing with patterns is, um, is, uh, is how people make decisions and think through problems as, as a pattern. And I'm, and I've been, the next phase of my work has really been marrying the communication skills and the insights on that kind of thinking. And that's where things like the newsletter come from and the book come from, because I feel like what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm, I'm taking how people are working through things and how they could work through them better. And then I'm feeding it through the lens of how can I tell these stories in compelling ways? And that, that takes me very far away from community newspapers a long time ago. But like I said, with the zigzag thing, like everything builds upon itself. And so if you are always mindful of what have you gathered, then you can figure out how to apply it next. I love that. And what would you say your kryptonite is, your weakness? Um, my weakness is something that I have, my, my joke answer was going to be Candy Crush, which I'm at like level 5,800 or something stupid. But um, my, I'll tell you my weakness. My weakness is that I naturally work. And, um, and I will 
oh, I will do that if I don't check myself at the exclusion of too many other things. And, uh, and that has not yet led to burnout, but it absolutely could. And so, um, so a thing that I have been really mindful of this year, like this was a goal for this year, which I would say I'm actually doing a fairly decent job at is, um, is to work a little less, uh, to take walks with friends, to, um, just take some time where maybe I'm doing something that isn't working, uh, to like listen to music instead of podcasts to just chill out a little bit. And, um, and that, yeah, I, I don't accomplish it every day, but I try. Wow. Okay. I wish that you do find more time for that because I'm sure that's something that's definitely gonna, at the end of the day, come back in a better way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. I have to say, I said very inspirational, like the, I have to say the superpower of patterns. I'll give you another one that's like, that for me that I see on you, it's also packaging it so other people can understand and it's fine to see those package, those patterns because there's something you know and it could be in front of your nose, but you package it so anybody can apply it on themselves also in your examples and really inspiring. So thanks for your time. Oh, guys, I, I appreciate that. I really appreciate the compliment. Well, thank, thanks to you. And um, I'll just say if anyone wants to get in touch with me, a couple of different ways to do that. I had said the newsletter, which is one thing better dot email. Uh, what else did I say? Help wanted, which is the podcast. You listen to podcasts and there's another one. You can find it wherever you find this podcast help wanted. And, um, and that my, and my book, which we had talked a little bit about, which is called build for tomorrow. Yeah. And which we both highly recommend. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thanks guys. Thanks. That's all for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast. So you never miss an episode. Also, if you have a moment, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and review our podcast on the platform you're listening to. This will help others find our show. And as always, if you know anyone who you think would enjoy our podcast, please share it with them. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back as usual on the first of the month. Real. Live. Superpowers. Superpowers.